0: Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Taming the Shrew, and this time it's another Journal Club recap, and we decided to cover a bevy of airway articles. Um, First, we're going to talk about a little bit of pre-oxygenation with some flush rate O2, and then we're going to look into the concept of of head-of-bed elevation while intubating, not just during pre-oxygenation, while intubating. So, uh, today, we are joined here by Dr. Isaac Shaw, Dr. Jared Colmer, and Dr. Kevin Randolph. Gentlemen, uh, thanks for uh, joining us here.
1: Yeah, Happy to be here. for having
0: us. So what do, you, uh, what do you want to start with first? Uh,
2: so I think we'll start with my paper first. Um, this one's basically about the flush rate oxygen for emergency airway pre-oxygenation. Um, that was the title of the article. It was written by uh, Driver et al., and it was published in the Annals of Emergency Medicine in January of this year, 2017. Uh, Full disclosure, I do require oxygen to live, so I'm somewhat biased here. (laughs) Um, So everyone knows the P's of RSI, and they're always being changed every year or so. But essentially, the new one that's been kind of going on is kind of pre-intubation optimization, uh, which we could go more into hemodynamics for optimization for that standpoint. But today I wanted to focus on, and basically what this paper focuses on is pre-oxygenation. And right now, we're always trying to find the best way to do it. But really, there's no proven perfect method right now that's kind of objectively perfect. Uh, but right now, see, there's been previous studies that's basically demonstrated the bag-bass mouth uh, was kind of standard and superior to a standard non-rebreather. Uh, and by right, standard non-rebreather, these are always on set on 15 liters of um, oxygen per minute. And without any of this, there's never any ventilation standpoint. This is always just kind of seal and let oxygen go through and pre-oxygenate for the sake of nitrogen washout. And what this paper kind of does is introduce the concept of – it's already been introduced before, but essentially a revisit of the concept of basically flush rate oxygen, which is essentially taking that knob on the oxygen tubing on the wall and turning it all the way up to the knob can't go anymore. And this is kind of being estimated of 40 liters to 60 liters per minute of oxygen. And the bottom line of this paper is that they've proved that non-rebreather with the flush rate flow was basically non-inferior and just as good as a standard bag mass valve on the standard 15 liters per minute. Why are we trying to prove that non-rebreather is just as good, if not better? And I think for essentially, it's just better for everyone to use the non-rebreather, especially in the setting. These are all spontaneously breathing patients that don't require any ventilatory effort or assist. Um, non-rebreathers are going to be more comfortable They're easier to use And there's less resource utilization You don't have to worry about someone holding a bag mask seal Over this person the entire time If someone's agitated or distant They don't have to be worried about having their face suctioned in um, And it's just easier to use You can just strap a non-rebreather on And get ready for your intubation Instead of you know, ha- relying on someone else to hold a, a t- tight seal Which maybe that will be trained as well um, Where you can bag that on And go ahead and optimize your intubation attempts By having all your resources ready like I said, these are. there's no downfalls to having bag mass valve. Um, in a spontaneously breathing patient, you have to have a one-way exhalation port to make it work. And most of the bag mass valves actually in the merchant departments are shown not to have these valves. And there's no. There's, you can get more free room air in there messing with your FiO2. You also have to have that mask seal, which patients can, are not, not easy to tolerate and they also can be hard to get if they're obese or if they have the beards and the facial hair, that whole mnemonic. And then you have to have that constant holder, which essentially we are always trained to be the most experienced person. But I would argue that the most experienced person still should be getting ready and setting up for their own intubation. Um, so basically, this, the, the use of flush straight non-rebreather on a breathing patient allows for more patient comfort and just better free hands to optimize intubation. Um, So this study is basically, it's a single center trial. It's a small study, but I I would argue that it's actually efficient um, in the setting of the first study going out for this. It's a crossover trial. It uses 26 healthy volunteers. These volunteers are actually ED staff. Of the 26, 13 are men, and five of them actually have facial hair. Uh, the, The mean BMI of it was 24, and the mean age was 31. So just kind of a normal person. Your exclusion criteria here was basically they had to have no active respiratory illness. Um, they could never have any extensive history of smoking. They couldn't be pregnant, and they couldn't be less than 18 years old. What well, was surprising is that they did allow chronically controlled illnesses, like a previous history of asthma or controlled COPD, to be in the trial. And basically what the tri- what the, what the study was is that each subject went through four randomized order trials. No one went through the same order, but essentially they spent three minutes either with all four of bag mass valve at 15 liters a non-rebreather at 15 liters and then a non-rebreather at the flush rate which at this study at this uh, center was actually estimated to be 50 to 55 liters per minute of oxygen and the simple face mask was flush rate no one's really using the simple face mask and for the sake of timing i probably won't talk about it because we already kind of no one uses that anymore anyway um and the primary endpoint was measured essentially as the baseline feo2 um, this was obtained before and after each pre-oxygenation trial. Um, what they used was a standardized device that they got just to measure it, where they blow in the plastic tubing and all kinds of random chemistry and physics stuff that we won't get into today. But gave you the Feo, FeO2 of essentially of what they got. Uh, the results were compared using the means and a 95% confidence interval. Um, they got 26, and that was the power estimate obtained. And the reason they got that 26 is that they looked at a previous the previous bag mass valve study comparing that to a non-rebreather. And Essentially for this study, they found that the mean baseline of it before anyone got any pre-oxygenation was six, uh, 17.3% um, FiO2. And what they found was that there was an 8% difference in the non-rebreather on flush rate uh, versus the bag mass file of 15 uh, liters per uh, oxygen per minute. The, non, the uh, non-rebreather got you up to an 86% percent FEIO 2 mean compared to the 17.3. And the bag mass valve at the 15-minute standard, got you only up to 77 percentile, which did hit all the confidence intervals and make it that it was non-inferior. Um, so just as good, if not even better. The non-rebreather at 15 was only at 55%, and the, the face mask flush was better, but it was at flush rate, and it was at 72%. Um, and what, what, why does this matter? And I think previous studies have actually shown that with every 10% difference in FeO2, it allows you to have one more minute of safe apnea time during intubation. So the strength of the study is that non rebreathers are easy, right? Like we can use this now. We can use this flush rate, and it's easy. The patients can tolerate it, and you have room to do it, and you now have evidence to know that you can actually pre your patient just as well as you could by holding a tight seal the entire three minutes. Uh, the limitations of this study... First of all, no one's blinded, but honestly, I don't see how you could blind this without just looking at the numbers. Everyone's going to know how it's working. Um, it's a crossover study, so everyone's their own control. Um, and there's kind of three little, three little biases that come with every crossover study. And basically, the first one's order. Does the first one affect the second one? And with this one, they did try to randomize the sequence so that everyone was different and hopefully could randomize up enough where there wouldn't be an, an order matter. Um, The second is basically the carry-on effect. And this can happen a lot with medications, but basically is the the last intervention going to affect the second intervention. And this study did work to prevent that because they did give everyone minutes of time to rest before, and they would not start another pre oxygenation trial until their FeO2 returned to their previous baseline. And the third one is the learning effect, and that one I would argue is hard to do because everyone is on the same technique and just having their FeO2s measured. The other limitation is that these are healthy volunteers, right? They don't have any active disease. Um, and does this actually translate into our patient population? We're not really intubating a lot of healthy people electively in the emergency department. Uh, everyone here is normal and spontaneously breathing, which I would argue was half the reasons we intubate people in the first place. Is that there's something going on with their ventilatory efforts? Um, the study hasn't taken part of dyspnea or hypoventilation or ultramental status, which is a huge reason, or neuroprotective intubations, and we also don't take into account of any types of shunt physiologies for massive PEs or any of that sorts. Another limitation to reconsider also is that subjects had to hold their own bvm to their face they were able to hold their own seal and if they felt there was a leak they could adjust accordingly as well as a supervision person watching it as well and i think we could always argue in the emergency department no one's ever going to be holding their own seal if they will not be able to uh, which i think goes to continue the argument that seals are hard to do which is another in favor of non-rebreathers so the fut- what is the future? What do, we, what do we learn from this, and what do we need more of? Well, I think we need to apply this to more of the ED population. I think now that we've proven it's better, we can apply this to the general population in the emergency department. This will include our elderly, our obese, those with facial hair, the different types of intubations that we need to do, the agitation, the dysmic, the overdose, the people who have multiple pathologies going on that we don't really know what's going on. Another question is, this back, we, we only compared this non-rebreather with flush rate to a bag mass valve at standard rate of 15 liters per minute. But I think logically we could also say that bag mass valve at flush rate is probably already better. And this was actually essentially studied in a previous anesthesiology journal where they did compare 30 liters versus 15 liters and it did have an improvement of FeO2. Um, they also show – they talk about apneic oxidation, or we can at least talk about it here and that it's the new big thing and everyone wants to do it. But with flush rate, is it needed? Is this, we already know that non-rebreather at 15 liters per minute with a nasal cannula brings up your FeO2 to only 52 to 67% when a flush rate oxygen does show more and gives you more apneic time. I would argue that you probably still need it, but it's worth considering, especially if you don't have the nasal cannulas around, which I don't imagine you'd be in a world where you don't. And we don't ever take into account any indications for CPAP or BiPAP in the setting of preoxygenation. I think there are times and places where this is going to be needed more, um, but it's worth figuring out: is this even better at preoxygenation, and should we? Is this a primary? I don't think it's been studied before and worth looking at. Um, I think the take-home point here and the theory that I think the, the flush rate works is that the O2 flow rate does exceed the inspiratory flow rate of patients. And I think that that, when it does that, it can knock out that, nit- that nitrogen in the dead space of the airways. Um, and that's really all I got for the pre-oxygenation, boys.
3: So you yourself would be excluded from your study due to the fact that you currently have laryngitis. That is correct. So we'll give Kevin a moment to breathe.
1: Fair. Well, then I'd like to jump right in uh, to what we would do after we have finished pre-oxygenating our patients. And so the next step is to consider our intubation. And specifically, the question that I'm looking at is as to what position the patient should be when you do so. And so typically, most patients that you'll see intubated in most EDs around the country are going to be in the supine position. However, this article was targeting whether or not you would find benefit from placing your patient in a uh, bed-elevated position with the head elevated as well. And so the title of the the article is Head-Elevated Patient Positioning Decreases Complications of Emergent Tracheal Intubation in the Ward and Intensive Care Units. This was done by Drs. Candlewall et al. in the Journal of Anesthesia and Analgesia in 2016. The bottom line for this paper is that intubating patients in the back up head elevated position when compared to supine positioning reduced the odds of airway related complications. So at the time of the writing of this article, there had already been papers that had looked at this type of positioning, where the back would be up and the head would be elevated. Specifically, it looked at the ability of this positioning to augment pre-oxygenation, and there were articles that demonstrated this effect. Additionally, articles had looked at the type of view that the operator would obtain within this positioning and noted that also this positioning could augment the view for the operator, thereby inherently increasing the success chance for first pass intubation. However, what they had not done up until this point was look at comparing rates of adverse events between the two positionings. Specifically, in this case, they wanted to try their best to compare these two groups. The study design that they chose to do this with was a retrospective, observational, and unblinded study. They used patients that were had intubations performed at two large academic medical centers, and all of these patients needed to have their intubations performed in a setting other than the ED, operating room, or the PACU or sort of the resuscitation unit where the patients will go after an operative procedure. The primary endpoint that they were looking for were intubation-related complications, which they defined as a difficult intubation, further defined as requiring greater than three attempts, an intubation that took longer than 10 minutes, or needing to be converted to a surgical airway. They also considered an intubation-related complication to include hypoxemia, for which they desaturated below 90%, assuming they had started above 90%. Esophageal intubations were also included, as well as aspiration, for which that would include any patient that they noted gastric contents above the glottis or within the endotracheal tube following intubation. And ultimately, the results of this study showed that within the population that was intubated in the supine position, 76 out of 336 of them had one of those primary endpoints occur for a total of 22.6%. In the bed up head elevated group, 18 out of 192 patients experienced this outcome for a total of 9.3%. And it bears mentioning that there were a variety of inclusion and exclusion criteria for which this group used to determine which charts they would review. Specifically, the inclusion criteria were the patients that were intubated in the settings described. In other words, not in the ED, not in the OR, and not in the PACU. But exclusion criteria include any patient that was under the age of 18, any patient that had an intubation performed by an emergency medicine provider, and any patient that was undergoing active CPR or for whom the intubation occurred as a result of need for CPR. Additionally, they excluded any patient that did not undergo direct laryngoscopy. So if at any point during the event, video laryngoscopy was used, that chart was immediately discarded from the potential evaluating charts. So ultimately, some of the strengths that I find for this paper are that they did target endpoints that mean something to me as an emergency medicine provider. I am interested in being able to reduce the complications, such as requiring multiple attempts at intubation. I'm interested in uh, reducing esophageal intubations. I'm also interested in reducing... Poem, <laughs> aspiration events as well. All thoughtful. of these are very <laughs> the legitimate goals. Yeah, these are all legitimate negative things, things to work on. <laughs> things that we want to avoid. Uh and I'm glad that I have the buy-in from my colleagues for that as well. Um uh, so that is definitely a strength. Um although there are a lot of things that uh Oh, another strength, sorry, that I also think is that although they did exclude emergency department patients, they certainly looked at our type of patients. These are not the ones that were in the OR undergoing an elective intubation. These were essentially patients who needed emergent intubating. Um, And so that is our population. Certainly some weaknesses and things to consider is that this is a retrospective study. And so they're able to calculate an odds ratio via their linear regression models. But ultimately, this does not lead to a causal relationship. I mean, you can essentially say that A uh, leads to B via some type of an odds relationship. You have an increased odd or a decreased odd based on this type of study, but you can't say A causes B, and for that reason, you have to bring into question whether or not it's true, true, unrelated, essentially, in this specific study setup. Additionally, what about patients that are in shock? This study did use a characteristic known as the, in order to risk stratify their patients, the Makocha criteria.
3: God bless Uh, you. Yeah, I know. (laughs) Thank you.
1: (laughs) But they didn't actually look at specific uh, groups of patients. So in specifically crashing patients, perhaps having their head elevated could be a potential complicating factor. Additionally, not looking at ED patients certainly is something that uh, I have concerns with, but it's really fortunate uh, that one of my colleagues may be able to further shed some light on that very question, and so we'll lead on into Isaac's paper. But wait, there's more. So there is an ED study, um, and I think if your paper,
3: it, though it doesn't address ED patients, it does. You know, it, it it does talk about anesthesia patients that aren't
1: like directly in the OR. So maybe maybe applicable to ours. Yeah. No, fair enough. I think that's I think that's a great point. It's definitely uh, a star for the paper that they included those types of patients. Uh, but nonetheless, they did explicitly. Exclude our emergency medicine colleagues, and so I have to at least give them one point off for that. Blah, blah.
3: (laughs) They receive negative one point, and uh, they get two gold stars there. Yes,
1: so uh, Um, we'll check the net value.
3: So (laughs) my paper uh, essentially did, uh, essentially, it it looked at Jared's paper, uh, this uh, bed up, head elevated position, but applied it directly to ED patients. So it was more applicable to our patient population and probably more applicable to our daily practice. Uh, So the paper that I had studied or wrote about was feasibility of upright patient positioning and intubation success rate at two academic EDs. This was done by Turner et al. uh, at uh, the IU School of Medicine, uh, Department of Emergency Medicine. It was published in the American Journal of Emergency Medicine February 2017. So really the take-home point from this paper that in this study, EM residents, given only kind of a brief tutorial... Uh, had a higher chance of first-pass success when intubating with head-of-bed equal to or greater than 45 degrees when compared to either supine positioning or uh, kind of that intermediate positioning. So uh, this paper had specifically looked at this question because uh, there were previous papers that had found that the head-of-bed elevated had improved pre-oxygenation and simulated as well as OR environments that had improved glottic view. Uh, And then in Jared, uh, the paper that Jared had studied specifically, it uh, reduced complications. So there were essentially no, there there were no studies up till this point on ED uh, patients uh, and ED, uh, the ED patient population. So this was a prospective study. It was observational and it was done over 231 intubations over the period of a year at two academic EDs, The county hospital in Indianapolis, as well as more of the academic medical center. And what they did, essentially, was they showed these residents a 45-minute video on how to, uh, how to, or a small video on how to intubate at head of bed at 45 degrees. They gave them a little simulation session on it. And then they stocked all of their carts uh, with a device to measure the angle of the head of bed compared to the floor, a stopwatch, and then a survey. And uh, this was the study design. They would have the resident before the intubation measure the angle of the head of the bed and then write down both the indication, the blade, the glottic view that they got, as well as their satisfaction with the angle that they had intubated at. The nurse would measure the time from the point at which the laryngoscope would go into the patient's mouth to the time that the resident would either declare bilateral breath sounds or they would have uh, end-tidal capnography confirm that the tube was in place. Um, So this was considered the the total time of intubation. And then both the faculty and the RT uh, to prevent discrepancies would record the number of attempts at intubation, which was defined as any uh, attempt was defined as putting the laryngoscope blade into the mouth. If you retracted it, it was uh, considered a, a new attempt. And then they would also record adverse events, uh, they had done these uh, essentially by recording death at five days by chart review, pneumonia, and then the faculty, as well as the RT, would record the starting oxygen saturation and the ending uh, to find out if during the intubation the patient had desaturated. Their primary endpoint was this first pass success. And secondary endpoints were number of attempts and then adverse events during intubation. So, death within five days, a new pneumonia after intubation, or a, an oxygen desaturation during the intubation. And so, the results that they got were that it was statistically significant that intubation at 45 degrees or above had a higher first pass success rate. So, those who were at 45 degrees and above versus those to 20 to 40 degrees versus those between supine and 10 degrees. So 45 and above had an 85% chance of first pass success. Those who had uh, intubation at the head between 20 and 40 degrees had a 77% chance at first pass success rate. And those who were supine to 10 degrees had a 65% chance at first pass success rate. Um, some other interesting results where this was an observational study so they weren't completely randomized. So when you compare the patient populations of the supine versus the intermediate versus the 45 degrees and above group, um, the percentage of patients undergoing CPR was much higher in the supine group. Uh, You can't really probably deliver as effective as CPR at 45 degrees and above. So 13% of the patients that were in the supine group um, were undergoing CPR versus 1.5% of the patients in that intermediate group and 0% of the patients that were at the head-of-bed elevated group. Uh, they had differences in their patient population and the sedatives used and the paralytics used. This can most mostly be explained that during CPR, these were crash intubations, so they would not use sedatives or paralytics. Uh, so when the sedatives and paralytics were none, um, it, was, it was 13.2% of the patients. So that could be explained that way. And then the patients who had the secondary endpoints being cardiac arrest uh, at th- essentially 30 minutes pro- uh, after intubation was stati- statistically significantly to be higher in the supine group. Uh, so the patients who had 45 degree head of bed 45 degrees and above, had a statistically significant chance of essentially a lower chance of undergoing a cardiac arrest or suffering cardiac arrest 30 minutes after the intubation. So this was a 7.9% in the supine group, 0% in the intermediate group, and 0.8% in the 45 degrees and above group. So Strengths of the article, uh, I would say that this is an ED patient population. They did show a uh, statistically significant improvement in uh, in in the first pass success rate when demonstrating this head of bell, bed at 45 degrees and above. They had a pretty minimal training session, so I think that this is something that we can apply to our EDs if we do a short training session on it, um, and something that will be Uh, more and more discussed in the future. So I kind of see this as a a future topic. Weaknesses, it was, as I mentioned, an observational study. There wasn't complete randomization. So those patients who had to undergo CPR uh, could have altered the effects of the study. Um, Additionally, the first-pass success rates were a little bit lower than we would typically expect. Uh, It was only 65% in those who were supine, uh, whereas most studies find that first-pass success is between 70 and 90%. Although they very strictly defined 1st pass success, and they had two recorders. So a lot of these studies were self-reporting 1st pass success, which uh, I think that, you know, some people may be bashful if they take a couple attempts, um, and so may not be completely honest in their reporting. Um, And lastly, weaknesses, you know, we'd mentioned the randomization, uh, but uh, I I think that if we apply this to a bigger randomized patient population, we'll get uh, better and more definitive results. So.
0: Excellent. Well, that's excellent, gentlemen. I really, uh, I really like this this trio of articles because um, a lot of it really, uh, if all these things bear out, to be effective in the emergency department or about making airway management a bit more efficient right i mean uh no one likes a hand cramp from trying to hold a bag valve mask seal on a patient for five minutes while you pre them with a bag valve mask with a peep p-valve um it's just it gets exhausting you go to do your intubation and and you got very little hand strength left after all of that um i might just be a weak person though that's very possible <laughs> that's um, not it's hard <coughs> gotta save
3: gotta save those intubating hands
0: <laughs> um and 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 uh, and so you know flush rate 2 uh, turn it, crank it all the way up and if it's just as effective you know with or without app box I think that's that's awesome um, and then you know a patient population in which uh, you know we all know that preoxygenation is better with the patient elevated as it is and so um, the time uh, spent from imagining what the patient's ap- optimal positioning is going to be um... when they're laying flat and trying to get the just just the correct ramp built behind them when you eventually lay them flat and and trying to sit them back up to do pre-actionation it's kind of a pain and i found Definitely, um, with there are certain patients, especially the obese patient population, having them at some degree of elevation makes it a lot easier to get to an ear to start a notch position, which is sort of the optimal position from establishing a line of sight when you're doing direct laryngoscopy, um, and, and, and the optimal position even when you do, when you, even when you're doing video laryngoscopy as well. Mm-hmm. And so, if you keep them in that elevated position uh then you know you're saving a little bit of time, you're saving movement of the patient and it just all, all around makes your, your airway management more efficient. So um thank thanks for uh, picking these articles out gentlemen.
1: No, Happy no. To help. Thanks, thanks for having, for having us. Yeah. Alright,
0: we'll join you next time. Thanks.